morning, church. <laughs> Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 4 through 16. Please read along with me, either in your Bibles or on the screen behind me. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to the men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, we're in a series on our mission and vision as a church. And the first two weeks we said, first of all, that we want to be an awakened people. That's what we want to be. We want to be an awakened people who are then sent by God to awaken others. But we said in order to understand that, in order to be sent by God, we have to first be an awakened people. What, what every single person needs, what we've been saying is, you're not a Christian because of your proximity to church. You're not a Christian because you... Uh, checked a, a box on a card at one point. You're not a Christian because you even believe generally about Jesus or generally about the Bible. You're a Christian when God's Spirit takes His Word, the Gospel, the good news of Jesus, and He breathes upon it into your soul in such a way that He makes Jesus real to you. All of a sudden, it's not something someone who lived way back then and may have been the Son of God, but has no personal effect on your life, but he makes Jesus real to you. See, Christians aren't religious people. Christians are Jesus people. But then Christians, we say, get sleepy and they grow dull. So we always need to be awakened. 
If you've been a Christian very long, you've known like, I can grow sleepy, I can grow dull. And so us coming together, us living life together, us worshiping together, training together, us being a part of a community get together is all part of how can we raise the sails so that God can breathe upon our souls and continually awaken us? Because we always need his work. And here's what happens when that happens in your heart, and that happens among a group of people like this. What happens is God continually makes us a thankful people. We're thankful because we realize I have nothing endearing of myself that God in his love for me brings me in whenever I didn't have any resume to claim. But that also makes us incredibly humble people. It makes us continually thankful and joyful and worshipful. We have something to praise and worship even when things are really, really dark and hard. Maybe you're in a time like that right now. Maybe you've been there before as a Christian. Maybe you've experienced the the peculiar joy that you feel working within your soul whenever you can worship and praise even when tears are running down your cheeks, whenever you don't understand even why things are as hard as they are. Because you are continually joyful and thankful and humble because God is at work in you. And then we said last week that one of the effects that happens whenever individuals and together as a group of people, as we are awakened from our sleep, we're awakened from our lethargy and we see Jesus becomes real to us and thankfulness and humility and joy begins to erupt within us, love begins to erupt up. Grow up within us, what God turns a group of people like that into a center of His presence. You see, God's presence is everywhere, right? You can't escape His presence. But God has paid in Jesus a great price in order to draw us, to draw you back into fellowship with Him. Not just that you would live in his general presence and creation, but that you would be brought back into fellowship, a personal relationship, a union, a communion with God himself, which is what you were created for. And we get to, as believers, we get to experience that actual union and communion through the Holy Spirit. See, as Christians, we don't just believe about God We are brought into relationship with God, and we can know him in some ways in a very even deeper way than you know your closest friends and your family. And then as we become, as we're grafted or reborn into God's family and his kingdom, we become a part of God's living living temple, and we enjoy and represent God together on earth like like a city set on a hill is what Jesus described us. Now, when he does that in a church, you know what happens? God's people begin to feel like God's people. God's people begin to feel like God's people. And when people come into our midst, they say there is someone, something different here in their midst. It's not because these people are cool. It's not because they're particularly smart. It's not even because they're particularly moral or good, but because someone, something, some power, some presence, someone is here in their midst. 
God's people begin to feel like God's people and they experience and enjoy God. And he actually speaks and leads and comforts and teaches and empowers his people through his Holy Spirit. And when that happens, non-Christians, those who are hurting, those who are hungry, those who are skeptics, the critics, they actually begin to stream into the church because they may not be sure what's going on here, but there's something when they're gathered in the middle of God's people that look and smell and act like God's people and his presence is in our midst, they know that strikes a chord within them. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen. A church that I grew up in that Vaughn was a pastor of one year whenever I was about a teenager. Uh, we had a, a, a couple of years where we saw God move in a really amazing way. We grew by 40% in one year. And what happened was we saw, as a teenager, I saw teenagers coming in who had no church backgrounds, coming in to services that lasted an hour, half, two hours, and longer. And I was wondering, why are they coming around here? And they would come around, and what happened? They would become believers. They would get saved. And I, later on, I asked them, why would you even come as a teenage guy, as a teenager? Why would you come and hang out with a group of people who are a little bit weird, a little bit different, into a setting like this with services that last this long? And they said, you know what? I thought you guys were crazy, but I knew something was different here. And that's the story. That's the story of how the church has grown throughout the centuries. It's never been because of charismatic leader or a great program or even a great building. You can grow a crowd in any of those ways, but you don't grow the kingdom in those ways. And there's a difference that is light years difference. We've been talking about what God does in his church, but today we're going to talk about how we respond to that. What is the, God gives us a mission for his church, and his mission is to grow and to help each other grow. It's a mission that comes directly from Jesus. And the, th the truth is, we won't be the church he has called us to be if we don't fulfill that mission that he's given us. And it's a mission to disciple each other into maturity, or we can say into wholeness. Let, let's read the heart of our text again, verses 11 through 16. Ephesians 4, verse 11 through 16, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints, hear this, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Just put a little pin in that for later. Who does the ministry? Just put a pin in that. For the building up of the body of Christ until we all, all, all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, or that word is maturity, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ." from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The first thing we see in our passage is that the people of the church are a new kind of people. The people of the church are a new kind of people. 
In order to understand what the role and mission of the church is, we have to understand, we're going to talk about two things. First of all, we have to understand what the church is and what the church is not. What the church is and what the church is not. Here's what the church is not. And now this is a challenge in our setting. Uh, because we, if you live in a country or an area where Christianity uh, was, was small, like the Lannis is in Iran or Iraq, you don't have to spend quite as much time saying what the church is not. Because they may have some preconceived ideas, but it's not like where we live here in the American South. Where Christianity has a big presence and a long history, and it's still very visible. And just over time, as individual Christians can grow dull or sleepy, churches become dull or sleepy. And what happens in that case is we can begin to think about church in ways that aren't biblical, even though things look somewhat similar as they did before. Now, here in the Grand Strand in the South, we've been ex- affected by two things that affect the way that we think about church. First of all, it's consumerism. Consumerism. Have you ever noticed that we talk about church instead of the church? I didn't go to church today. What church do you go to? Or I'm going, to go, I'm going now to a different church. Or how do you guys do church? We talk about it in a very casual way, like it's, uh, like it's a, a very light thing. Instead of talking about the church. You see, I can talk about church. Where do you go to church? Where do I go to church? How do you guys do church? And I can talk about it a flippant way because it's something that I consume, like where do you go to buy fried chicken? Where do you live? Where's your Italian place? Instead of thinking about the church that Christ died and gave his blood for, See, we're all affected by consumerism. And it's affected us in profound ways. We tend to judge church by consumeristic numbers. How how many people are running there? How happy are people who are going there? So therefore, if they have a lot of people and people are happy, therefore it must be good. Or some churches are so proud that they're small and nobody find a way in that say, we're the pure ones, therefore we must be right. It's like, what, what's your consumeristic taste? Are you like, are you the big mass people or are you like the like small exclusive club? But see, this isn't church. This is a local gathering of the church of Jesus Christ, which he gave his blood for. It is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, and its mission is to image and mirror and share and proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. People who are inside should know that this is different from those who are outside. And those who are outside should look in and say, I don't know if I understand or I agree with them, but I have to admit something is different about that place, that people. And it can't be, it can't be attributed to somebody being a great speaker or a great band or a great youth group or a great building. If we're able to attribute the, tr- the difference of the church to any of those things, then guess what? It is not Jesus-centered change. 
It is not the church of Jesus Christ. We've been affected by consumerism, and we've been affected by cultural Christianity. We're deeply affected by cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity is when the values and the trappings of Christianity, the values and trappings of Christianity in our culture get handed down to the next generation, but not life changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's when the the beating heart of Christianity, a a thriving relationship with God himself through Jesus, the new birth is forgotten. And the scary thing is it can look very much the same. Because in cultural Christianity, everybody knows what to say and what to do. Everybody knows how you dress when you go to church. Everybody knows the face that you put on when you go to church. Everybody knows when to stand and when to sit down. Everybody knows this is when I raise my hand at this part of the song. This is where I put my hand back down. Everybody knows what to do. It looks very similar. But the acid test is when we don't see the profound heart change that comes with faith. People perform worship, but their lives continue to to worship themselves, actually. And we have thousands and hundreds of thousands of people gathered right now in churches across this country who know how to sing and when to raise their hands and when to say amen and how to look Christian, but they have no heart change within themselves. And we don't see the kind of growth and change that this passage is talking about. You see, the church is not a building. The church is not a meeting or a service. The church is not a collection of good people. The church is not a collection of like-minded people. The church is not a collection of people who are naturally religiously minded. The church is not a collection of people who are hereditary Christians. What is the church? Well, we see in this passage what the church is, a little bit, of, a little glimpse of what the church is. We have to run through this quickly. First of all, we see in verse 1 before the passage that uh, Carolyn read for us, and then in verse 4 itself, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In Ephesians 4, 4, it says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. See, a Christian isn't someone who just happens to be associated with Christianity. A Christian who is someone who has heard and responded to the call of Jesus to follow him. A Christian is someone who has heard and responded to the call of Jesus to come to him as Savior and Lord, to see him as God and to see him as the great treasure of your life. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's why Christians are a new kind of people. And that is what creates the church. It's all those who by God's grace and his power have responded to his call and are gathered together under his name alone. Christians are those who are called by God, and Christians are those who are called out by God because inherent in the call to come to Christ, to come to Jesus, means you're being called out of the world. You're being called to worship him and to serve him alone as Lord and Savior means you are being called out of being your own Lord and looking for salvation anywhere else. That's the, the, the core meaning of the Greek word for church. It means those who are the called out ones. 
And as the called out ones, we are called to exhibit a new, what does it look like to be a part of a new humanity under the lordship of Jesus? Christians are a new kind of people because they're called and they're called out and because they are in relationship with the Father. We saw that in that section. They were called into relationship with the Father. One God and Father of all. We've been brought into communion with God as our Father. We have that kind of love relationship with him through Jesus. And we have that kind of claim on him in Jesus. He is our Father. Christians are those who are called and called out. They are those who are in relationship with the Father. And we are those who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Notice how he describes the church as one body and one spirit. Do you see how close those two are intertwined? One body, that's the, the wording used often in the New Testament to describe the church. One body and one spirit. The people of God are indwelled by the spirit of God. We are spirit of God people. The church is held together by the spirit of God in our midst. You see, it is a holy and a powerful thing that you've come to today. You come to a local gathering of the church of the living God. You've been come to a gathering of those who have been called and called out by Jesus, who have been brought into relationship with the Father and who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. It is powerful and it has a mission. That's what he goes to next in the, the passage. He says, we have all been given a mission. The people of the church have been given a ministry by God. Jesus himself called us to minister to each other. He called us, first of all, he called us to the Great Commission, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. And in this passage and other places, he calls us to commit ourselves to build each other up in our faith. You have a ministry. Did you notice that in the passage when I said put a pin in this? Does he, say, he says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers did he say that he called them to do a great ministry? No, he said he called them to equip the saints. Who are the saints? Is that the, like, St. Peter and St. Paul and those guys? Well, who's he talking about when he says the saints? You know what he's talking about? He's talking about you if you're a believer. And he says he has given the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, pastors, or shepherds and teachers in order to equip you to do the work of ministry that he has called you to do. He hasn't just called you and called you out and called you into relationship with him, but he has gloriously and wondrously given you a ministry to do on his command, at his behest, and under his power. You have a ministry that is Jesus-appointed and is leader-equipped. My role, the role of the elders, the role of the leaders in the church, our role is not to go out and to save everybody in Horry County. Our job is to equip you to see God move through you in the circle, in the sphere of influence that you have. And in the ways that we have failed to do that, I repent before the Lord, but I tell you, this is the role that I have before you, to equip you to go out and do the ministry to which he has called you, to run and to serve and to love in such a way that you get to see, 
Not I get to come and report, not that we just get to watch from across the world reports, but that you get to see God move in and through you in your home and in your neighborhood and in your workplace and in your, the dark places around you. That I am called, the leaders of this church are called to equip you to go and do the work of ministry. And that is not something that I'm supposed to guilt you into. It's something you get to do. Did you, did you see the, the look and the sound of joy on Aaron's face as he was talking about what they're doing in Iran? Do you hear the joy in his face when he says, we've seen over 900 baptisms? Do you hear that? Is he taking pride in that? Oh, I am such a great leader, I've seen 900 baptisms. You know how that's happening? It's happening as the believers that they baptize go out and they share with their households and their neighborhoods and their workplaces. And each person along the way gets to, be, gets to be a part of the joy of having God work in you and through you for the furtherance of his kingdom. God has given you a divine, Jesus-appointed, leader-equipped, body-building ministry. Not body, obviously. I'm not here to talk about bodybuilding for obvious reasons. I'm going to talk about building up his body. He's not called you to be a consumer of church. He's not called you to be a consumer of teaching. He's not called you to be a consumer of worship music. He says, I have given you divinely appointed methods of grace, means of grace, so that you could be equipped so that you could minister in my name. So that out in the places of darkness and here within the bo his body, you get to experience the joy of him ministering in you and through you and your particular gifts and abilities. Not all of us are called to speak. Thank the Lord. But he has given you a particular ministry that will not be a drudgery or a chore to you. Might, I'm not saying it will be easy, but it will be whenever you use and operate in that area of ministry, it will be a great joy and a fulfillment to you as he ministers in you and through you the furtherance of his kingdom. He's given up the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip you and to send you to do his work. And here's what happens as you and I, as all of us fulfill that ministry. This is what he says. He says, the goal of this ministry is maturity and unity. Did you hear that in the passage? Till we all come to the, it says that mature manhood, that, that's a, a word that means maturity, and unity, the, the picture here, the word I like to use is the, a picture of wholeness. God has given us, as his church, the ministry to disciple people into wholeness. Here's what happens. When God, when God creates a, a Jesus-centered, gospel-saturated gospel environment, it breeds hope and it breeds change. It breeds hope because people who come in who are broken and who are in need and who are hungry have a sense, I, I know I messed up, 
but I think there's a path here for me to grow and to change. I think there's a, a pathway for me to be knitted and made whole again, for me to be put back together. I think there's a pathway here, and it creates the hope, and that hope leads people to change. People in that kind of environment want to change because they are increasingly enjoying the love of Jesus. And people feel that they can change because they see and experience the person and the power of Jesus in our midst to change us. They see him at work. They hear stories. They get together in small group and they hear stories of how Jesus is changing people how he has changed them and is changing them. Hear stories about, they hear stories about another believer who is struggling in a similar way that I'm struggling, but that I get to see Jesus at work in their life, so therefore he can be at work in mine as well. They see the promises and the commands in Scripture, and they desire more and more to grow into the image of Jesus. They want to look like Jesus more and more. And they're encouraged as they look around them, they see those who have changed and who are changing. Now, Paul says something here in this passage. He says that we need to apply ourselves to grow because it doesn't happen automatically. That's why he says we have to attain to the unity of the faith. Here's what he's saying. If you're a believer in Christ, you're forgiven and you're brought into relationship with God, you're filled with His Spirit, and in your very core of who you are, you are and have been profoundly changed in your inner being. But here's the deal. Much of the rest of us remains the same. My bad habits, my sinful tendencies, my bad patterns of life, I still lie and talk about bad about people. I, Still, I'm racked by lust. I am still overwhelmed with fear and anxiety. I'm still affected by my, my, by my background, the things that people have done to me, ways that people have wronged me or hurt me or abused me. I'm affected by all those things. Our old way of thinking, our, our old values, though all those are still there. And here's the thing, that we come into the family of God as infants. That's the picture he's painting here. It's the way we all come. We all are born into the family of God as infants, and then we must grow. Now, this is encouraging, first of all, because here's why this is encouraging. Because the baby, we're kind of spread out in our family. We have all kinds of ages, from three-year-old, a boy getting ready to turn 12, a 15-year-old daughter, and then Megan and I in our well, decades into life. And here's the thing. The baby, the toddler, the preteen, the teenager, the adult are all equally members of the family. We come into God's family as infant, but no matter where you are in your walk, no matter how broken you may feel that you are, no matter how little you think you know, you're still a part of the family. Whether you're an infant toddler, a preteen, teenager, an adult, we're all part of the family. No matter where you are in your growth, you belong. Growth doesn't have a thing to do with your belonging to God or his family. That should be encouraging. 
you might have royally continued to blow it in your Christian walk. But if you're a believer in Christ, you might be a baby. You might have little weak faith, but you're still a member of the family. That's where our growth comes from, in fact. Our growth comes from us growing in awareness of who who I have now been born into being, whose family I'm now a part of, whose DNA is now, if you will, spiritual DNA is coursing in my soul. We're all a part of the family if you're a believer in Christ, but we are called to grow. And we can grow. That's the real amazing thing, that we're all called to grow into maturity. That word maturity or mature manhood, it means completeness, perfection, fullness, or we use the word wholeness. Here's the concept. The concept is that we are all broken, sinful people saved by grace, but Jesus is putting us back together. Isn't that good news this morning? You're not saved because you have it together or know a lot about the Bible. You're saved by his grace. But Jesus is putting us back together he is leading us into wholeness, into his wholeness. Did you hear that? To, oh, to we grow into the, into the likeness and into Christ. We are growing into his wholeness, his maturity, his perfection. Not your perfection, not your growth, not your strength. You're growing into his perfection, into his wholeness, into his maturity. And he does that through each other. He ministers to me through you guys, and to you guys through each other. Now, how does that growth happen? That's good news, too. Here's how growth happens. It doesn't doesn't happen as we put ourselves back together. It doesn't happen as we discipline ourselves more. That's been the message to a lot of Christians. Hey, you come to God, you come to Christ— through grace and faith. Now, one way or the other, we say it to each other, but yet you got to toe the line now. You got to discipline yourself. You got to put yourself back together. But it doesn't happen as you discipline yourself more. It happens as we learn to let Jesus be everything to us. That's how it happens. You're not called. You're called to grow in discipline, but you're not called to grow in your discipline. You're called to learn more and more how Jesus is everything to you, and you let him be that. But it's not something that happens in an instant. We grow over time as we do apply ourselves. And and he says that in the passage. He tells us to apply ourselves. We attain to the unity of the faith. Did you see that verse? Or that phrase, we attain to the unity of the faith. Now, when you see that word, the faith, faith is belief in Christ, but the faith, when you see that, that phrase put together, those two words put together, is talking about the body of teaching contained in the Scripture. And he's saying that we've got to do three things if we want to grow. Again, this is not, it doesn't happen by our work, but it happens as we apply ourselves We attain to the unity of the faith. We're supposed to to come and grow in the unity of the faith, the teachings of Scripture. That means we've got to do at least three things. First of all, we have to commit ourselves to learn and to study the Bible. 
In a way, we already have a unity of our faith if we're all believers in Christ. We have, I've used an example before, we have God is my father, he's your father. That brings us into a family together, right? We have a unity that's there, but he says that we have to attain it or grow into it or achieve it. In other words, we have to apply ourselves to grow. We don't earn God's favor by our efforts, but as we understand more and more his favor and his love towards us, we're spurred on to grow. It means we also have to submit ourselves to the Word of God. We commit ourselves to learn and study the Bible. In what ways have you committed yourself to learn and study the Bible? Secondly, we submit ourselves to the Word of God. This is really important because you can study and learn a lot about the Bible. You can memorize it. You can know lots of concepts about it. But if you haven't come to the Word, submitting yourself to it as the Word of God, then you will not grow. You will not change. It's that, the Word of God, that brings us together. It's what guides us, what brings us into a unity of the faith. We submit to the Word because we submit to God. And I often see a lack of growth because I see people come to the Bible without bowing their knee to Jesus. Here's the truth about Scripture. Here's the truth about the Bible. There are things in here that I don't like. There are things in here that I don't understand. But I have to come to it pre-submitted to say, even if I don't like it, even if I don't understand, even if I am misunderstanding, I'm submitting to you. I'm not going to judge whether this is true because it happens, I happen to agree with it or not. I'm coming with a submitted heart and a bowed knee. Now, there are things that I'll have to wrestle with there. But the wrestle becomes about how will I submit to him and change, not whether I will or not. We have to study Scripture in order to understand how it's about Jesus. We, we commit ourselves to learn and study the Bible. We submit ourselves to the Word of God, but we study Scripture in order to understand how it's about Jesus. That's really important. The, the, the phrase in that section of the Son of God, until you come attain to a unity of the faith and a knowledge of the Son of God, that Son of God points back to the knowledge and it points back to the unity of the faith. Here's what it's saying. It's saying we don't happen to grow if we just read and talk about and even memorize the Bible, the truth and power of Scripture is only unlocked when we see what it's showing us about Jesus. That's when the power is unlocked to change us. That's what saves us. That's what encourages us. And that's what can change us. See, if you read the Ten Commandments, you can say, you could say, all right, now I've got to go out and keep these commandments. And you know what? You will either find out you have royally screwed it up 48 hours in, or you will fool yourselves into thinking I'm more righteous than I really am. But if I understand that Scripture is about Jesus, then I, what happens is I see the commands in the Ten Commandments that I'm supposed to live, that the way my life is supposed to live. But then as I start to go about my day, I see, oh wow, I didn't cheat on my wife, I didn't steal anything, but every time I pass by those houses, I covet. I say, oh, man, I'm a rule breaker. How can I get that out of my heart? 
But then I remember, oh, but Jesus took that for me. Jesus fulfilled that for me, not so that I wouldn't have to do it, but so that I wouldn't be, I'll be freed from the bondage of the penalty of that law. And I find within that the ability, the motivation to actually begin to change because my heart is stirred with gratefulness to Jesus for having fulfilled the law for me. So therefore, I want to live in a way that pleases and honors him, but not in a way that secures my salvation or I can feel better about myself. It's only possible if you've applied yourself to know. You can only change it. this knowledge that, that he says that I want to the unity of the faith and he says, and this is really important though, I've got to finish, to the knowledge of the Son of God. This phrase there, knowledge, is, it means intimate knowledge. It means full knowledge or understanding. It means something that I can testify about. And that can only happen that I come to know more and more Jesus can only happen as I've applied myself to the word and I've applied myself to the means of grace that God has given me and the fellowship with the saints and worship and being ministered to and sharing my weaknesses with you and letting you minister back to me. It is, it is in that process as I apply myself to the word and to your ministry to me and, and his work through you to me, only through that that all of a sudden I see that what I was true in the pages of Scripture begins to become real and true to me. I'll close with this example. It wasn't too long ago, somewhere within the past year, not long at all. I was increasingly racked with a sense of guilt and feeling like a failure in most areas of my life. I say most, all areas of my life. And the thing was, I couldn't seem to change. I felt far away from God and I would try hard to be better. And then I'd give up for a while. Then I'd try hard again. Have you been through this before? But I kept failing felt terrible. I, I was defeated over and over and over again. I looked around and I didn't see fruit in my life. I didn't see fruit in my ministry. And I was wondering, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Everybody around me seems to have it together. What's wrong with me? And then a thought came into my, my mind. A deep fear arose within me. I wondered, Am I like this because the Lord has just moved on? Have I sinned and disobeyed him so many times that he's left me? Has his presence gone away from me and I'm like, Samson, I'm still doing this Christian thing. I don't even realize his spirit has moved on from me. I wondered how I grieved him so much that he had moved on. And I was reading this book by a guy named Sinclair Ferguson called The Whole Christ. And in this book, he talked about assurance, how to, how to know that we're Christ, how to have assurance of our faith. And I was reading it, I wasn't even aware I was struggling with assurance. I just thought, I know better and I keep messing up and the Lord has finally left me. Or I wonder, I'm afraid the Lord has finally left me. 
But in the book, Ferguson showed how, from Scripture how the place that we're supposed to look for the assurance of our salvation isn't to ourselves and our actions. The assurance of our salvation can only be by whether we're not our obedience, not whether we stopped our sinning, not our good behavior. The only way that we can fully be assured that we belong to Christ is by looking to Christ alone for salvation. That's the only way we can be assured of salvation is by whether I am looking alone to Christ for salvation, because that's the only way that we're saved. I can't keep myself saved by my actions any more than I can be born again by my actions. The only way that you can prove that you're a believer in Jesus is to believe in Jesus alone for your salvation, nothing else. Yes, you should have fruit. Yes, you should grow in love. But that's not what Scripture gives us as the final and greatest assurance. The only assurance, the greatest assurance we're given as believers is that I am looking to Christ alone for my salvation. Now, here's the thing. That wasn't new information to me. I'm reading this book, and that wasn't new information to me. I don't even think I had heard it. It was presented any different way than I'd heard before. But all of a sudden, there I was in my office, sitting in this chair, reading about how Christ alone is our assurance of salvation, and I began to cry. Tears rolled down my face. You know what happened? The, the knowledge that I have to look alone to Christ for salvation and assurance went from being something that I knew out there to being something I knew in here. Something I could testify to. And you know what that did? That began to change me. All of a sudden, I stopped looking to myself for how I was going to do better and how I was going to be better. And I looked to Christ that he was better for me that he is still better for me. And my only hope of salvation is hid through his cross and through his work, bringing me to the Father. And the only way I could stay saved is if he held me to himself. That's the only way. Not by my, not by my work and my efforts. You know what that did? That created a freedom in my soul. It created a joy and a song in my heart. And all of a sudden, I felt even my motivations to those things that I was trying to conquer and trying to conquer and failing over and over again. All of a sudden, I noticed my motivations began to change. I began to change. People began to notice it in me. My prayer life became more fervent and stronger. My ministry began to change. I began to see more fruit around me. I began to see more fruit of the Spirit in my life. I began to change. I, I began to grow in the knowledge of the Son of God. That's what it means to come to the knowledge of the Son. To know by experience, to know firsthand. And here's the thing, the Christian life can be and should be full of moments like that. And his church can be and should be full of testimonies like that. So even whenever I'm at a dry and dull time, I'm hearing from you and from you or from you how he's doing that in you. And we together are growing into the fullness of Christ. We find that we're being bonded together 
in love, and we find that we are made whole by Christ, that he is putting us back together. That's a beautiful thing to be a part of the church. Are you able to acknowledge that you're broken and you need to grow into wholeness and maturity? Are you committed to grow and mature? Are you committed for God to use you to help others grow? Are you able to accept in others whatever state of immaturity and brokenness they are simply because they're in Jesus like you are? How's the Lord called you to respond today? I encourage you to respond in that way.